It is also a security issue. Less so for America, of course, because of its ample supply of hard power, but nonetheless still a security issue. If a country does good around the world and is therefore admired and liked, it is much more secure than a country that couldn't be, people couldn't care less about. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Simon Anholt, the creator of the Good Country Index. In our discussion, we walk through what the Good Country Index is about and what makes a country good, gooder, or goodest, as he defines them. In particular, we're going to look at how the U.S. is faring. In our case, we often think that the U.S. can act alone and do good in that way. But what's really important about the findings of Simon's ranking is that countries that do good in the world end up getting rewarded by having others follow them. Perhaps we need to think less about a global strategic competition and think more about ways in building global cooperation with the U.S. showing the way. I hope you like our conversation. And now let's get into the show. Simon Anhalt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, Simon, you launched the Good Country Index in 2014 as a way to measure what each country around the world contributes to the global good relative to its size. Let's start in with just kind of an introductory. What is the Good Country Index? And have you seen it change since you, you started it in 2014? We're now seven years later. How have things changed? Well, the Good Country Index does exactly what you've just described very well. It tries to do a balance sheet for countries to, instead of constantly asking the question that pretty much every other country ranking or indicator does, which is how well is this country doing? You know, in a thousand different ways, that question is answered every day. How happy is this country? How prosperous? How fast growing? How transparent? How productive? And all of these questions seem to deal with countries as if they were isolated islands inhabiting their own private ocean, completely unconnected to the rest of humanity and the planet. And of course, that isn't the case. As we're sick of hearing, all countries are massively interdependent and interconnected. And I just thought maybe the question we should be asking today is not how well is this country doing, but how much is it doing for, for all of us? Is it acting as if it were a responsible member of the international community? So the, the Good Country Index takes a stab at measuring that. It really is only a stab because countries are complicated things to start with. And to try to really assess everything useful that a country does outside its own borders and everything unhelpful that it does outside its borders would be a lifelong task. So instead, I simplified it. What I do is I just take um, 35 data sets, which are, uh, it's, a, it's a composite index. It's, it, it uses other people's data. Mm -hmm. It's mostly from the United Nations family. And these 35 indicators are picked because they're the ones that best measure the good and the harm done by countries outside their own borders. So you end up with some rather interesting phenomena when it comes to the rankings. The countries that you don't normally see at the top of these rankings end up at the top mm. uh, because you're measuring things in a really completely different way. Very briefly, you asked about uh, how the rankings change. It's a little bit early to say. It's now in its fifth edition, and that may be a little bit like the famous Chinese emperor saying that it was too early to tell whether really? the French yeah. Revolution had been important <laughs> or not. But that's, that's the way it is with indexes. They take a while to settle down. 
we're still tweaking the methodology each year. And it is in any case somewhat volatile because 35 equally weighted parameters, countries can move up and down. But there, there are some general themes there, which of course we can we can talk about. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. But I was really struck watching, I watched your your TED talk that you you gave when you introduced this and talking about the age of globalization. And you gave this in 2014 and you started off by saying, you know, here we are now in an age when a chicken sneezing in China can set off a global pandemic. Right. And yet here, and so here we are seven years later and we're stuck in this pandemic. So, so I just wanted to give you all the credit for <laughs> foresight there <laughs> before we go further. It, it is no big deal. We were all talking about pandemics in 2014. If you cast your mind back, I don't get Nostradamus points for that at all. Yeah, well, and maybe we were talking about it, but we weren't, we weren't especially preparing as much as perhaps we should have been or, or thinking through Indeed. it. There is a lot of good that can be done as we come out of the pandemics and, and everything like that. The way that countries are being judged, certainly countries really get judged on how good they are or gooder or goodest as you rank them in there to other countries in their time of extreme need. And certainly a lot of countries are facing this time of extreme need now. So in a lot of ways, the ranking system and this idea of being a good country is probably most important right now as we're coming out of this pandemic and so many countries need that. Yes, I think that's right. Although I would argue that how countries contribute to the international community is of generally rising importance. Yes, it becomes very urgent, you're absolutely right, in times of crisis, but when are we not in times of crisis? Mm. I mean, you know, this is, the, this is the age of continuous turbulence. And if it's not the pandemic, then it's something for every country. And there are always large handfuls of countries that are passing through uh, economics or equality emergencies, and they need the help of other countries as well. But I, it, with the Good Country Index and, and my other work, I do try to pull it away from that basically 19th century notion of all the international community being about rich, successful countries helping the less successful countries. Right. Because I think that's a very old fashioned and ultimately quite sterile formulation. I prefer the idea of a world where all countries have an equal stake in the future and an equal responsibility to work together to make it work. For example, yes, you can get points in the good country index for giving spare cash to poor countries, but that's only one very small part of it. And in fact, uh, a very poor country can gain points in the good country index by receiving cash from other countries, because that's another way of participating usefully in the international system. So, yeah. so one, of, one of my favorite results in the very first edition back in 2014 was when Kenya, a country with a very small economy, managed to make it into the top 30 overall of countries that do the most good outside their own borders. Yeah. And that's not because it uh, gives away a lot of money in charity. Um, that's just because it participates actively and in a principled and intelligent way in the international community. And that's really what it's all about. It's not about helping the less fortunate. I'm, I'm going to push you on this, though, a little bit, because mm -hmm. we see these rankings, Global Happiness Index, that sort of stuff. And oftentimes it is small European, often Nordic countries that come up as best places to live and, and best, okay. you know, most contributors. And, you know, I look now at, at the index on your website now, and number one is Sweden and number two is Denmark. Yep. And uh, Finland has been 
pretty high up there as well. So there is a certain amount of the Nordics are good at this and, you know, want to go out, go out and help the world. And, and they're also relatively small. So they, when they can do stuff relative to their size, they can punch above their weight and and, Mm -hmm. and rise. It's, more interesting when you look at the individual category rankings, if mm. you look at peace and security, there you start to see some more unusual results, but you're absolutely right. And it is the usual suspects at the top, and it is important to ask why that should be. Of course, a great many people just assume that that's some kind of inherent bias. I wish it were, because then it would be easier to fix it and produce right. in some ways a more interesting result. It's really not. And my normal argument for this is what we're measuring here is the ability and the desire for countries to engage productively in the international community. And the member states of the European Union simply have more practical experience of that than any other countries. They've been doing it for 40 years and they know that it works and they know that it brings collective benefits. And the Nordics are a particularly collaborative group of countries within that collaborative framework. So it's not really surprising that they're the ones that collaborate best and most frequently because they're the ones who've done it for the longest time. They've just had the practice. And it it is easy, I think, for many commentators just to say, there's no point in even doing these measurements because we know who's gonna come on top. But there is a lesson to be learned from it. These countries in many ways are models that other countries can usefully learn from. And it is self-interest. Very important to stress that when I'm talking about being a good country, again, what I'm not saying is that countries need to be self-sacrificing for the common good. That would be absurd. Mm -hmm. The idea of a nation sacrificing itself to other nations is preposterous. What I'm talking about here is enlightened self-interest. The countries that work hardest to engage most productively with other countries are the ones that benefit in terms of, first of all, an improved reputation, because other countries like that. They like countries that do good outside their own borders. And if a country ends up with a better image, it ends up with more trade, more tourism, more foreign investment. So these are these are virtuous circles. I guess this is the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. It's not just a, another person saying, wouldn't it be lovely if everybody was lovely? No, yeah. this is this is uh, clear self-interest. Yeah, it actually matters. I pulled up the ranking here now, and you're right. Uh, on, For instance, on international peace and security, the top five countries in the world are kind of a, a, an interesting and surprising mix. Number one is Georgia, Ireland, Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, and then fifth is Rwanda. So, so it is a, a, a interesting mix spanning from Central Asia, only one European country, an African yeah. country, really interesting. And we better explain that, otherwise we'll have a lot of people out there <laughs> wondering whether you were reading the right list. Yeah. Um, it's, one of the, it's one of the curiosities of measuring external impact and excluding entirely all domestic features that yeah. you do end up in a rather unfamiliar landscape. Now, the reason why I exclude domestic factors is not because I think they're unimportant, obviously they're hugely important, but just because they're measured in so many other places and so well. One of the things I always say is never ever look at the good country index on its own always measure it alongside a reputable measurement of domestic performance like the Mm -hmm. human development index or or something of that sort in fact i've been doing a lot of interesting work with undp this year on combining and overlaying the human development index and the good country index to see how they perform when you put them together the Mm -hmm. reason why those countries rather unexpected countries which indeed in some cases are countries quite often associated with violence and insecurity the reason why they come on top is because they don't export 
any of that violence. Uh, In fact, if you were being cynical about it, you could say that some of them are so high up because they're so busy harming their own people, they don't have time left to harm anybody else's. But those are the results. And I offer them for what they're worth. You must say whatever you like about these countries, but they are not troubling anybody else with their problems. Interesting. So here in in the United States now, with the new Biden administration coming in, and they're starting to lay out their foreign policy and and international policy agenda and goals, there was a new interim national security strategy just released this week. But a clear through line on all of this is the idea that international policy and domestic policy should not be separated, that we shouldn't think of foreign policy as a completely separate thing than domestic policy. And they've pushed this idea of a a foreign policy for the middle class is one of the things that that Jake Mm -hmm. Sullivan, the national security advisor, has said. And especially in times when foreign policy is no longer just military divisions in Europe and hard security. It's about things like migration, inequality, climate change, and especially COVID-19 and vaccinations and the stuff that happens within your borders has huge impacts around the world as well. How do you reflect that in in any upcoming ranking systems and stuff? Well, it's precisely because of the fact that they're really domestic and foreign policy are a continuum and arguably have been for for decades Mm -hmm. that I've been doing this interesting work with UNDP Mm -hmm. on overlaying uh, the Human Development Index and the Good Country Index, because I think there's a very interesting notion here. I've just written an an essay for them about this, which says that the way that we should develop, measure development these days is a 360 degree version of development, which says, Mm -hmm. what are you doing at home? What are you doing abroad? And this is partly a test of authenticity. Because there are, of course, countries that treat their own people worse than they treat their neighbours. That's rare, but possible. Much more common is the other way around. Countries that do a marvellous job of looking after their own population and their own slice of territory, but are very remiss when it comes to worrying about the consequences of of their actions on other people's people and, Mm -hmm. and the global commons. So I think we have to move towards a view of governance broadly which takes into account both sides of that spectrum. And this is hard work for for, for politicians. I mean, they have tough enough jobs as it is, just trying to keep their own domestic base happy and at the same time trying to do no harm to people outside their borders. That's a tall order. But, you know, my day job is is as a policy advisor. I advise the heads of state and heads of government of countries all over the world. And that's been very useful for me because it's enabled me to actually try out real policy experiments in the real world and see how they fare. And what I've discovered over the last 20 years or so is that it's actually an awful lot easier than people suppose. There Mm. seems to be an assumption which all leaders inherit, no matter which party they come from, that the domestic and the international responsibilities are opposed to each other in conflict. Whatever you do that's good for the environment is going to slow down your growth. Mm. Whatever you do that's good for your own people is going to harm somebody somewhere. And it's just so much easier not even to bother thinking about it because it's so complex. Actually, all the evidence is that if you do start thinking about it, it starts producing a degree of innovation in your policymaking and just a broader view of what policy could mean. And of course, the benefits of wider collaboration, consultation with other countries, and all the rest of it, it actually thinking internationally makes domestic policymaking better. 
you actually end up producing better work. So I recommend this internationalist approach without hesitation to all governments, because I've seen over and over and over again how much it improves their thinking. And even if it's something super, super local, like what are we going to do about nurses' pay in the Northeast, right? A super domestic issue. If instead of getting a bunch of Americans to sit in a room and discuss nurses' pay in the Northeast, they all come from broadly the same national and cultural professional background, it's unlikely they'll come up with anything very new. But if you just invite in a bunch of people from five random countries around the world, as random as they happen to start with the same letter, America, Azerbaijan, you know, it doesn't matter. You will immediately find that the policy discussion is much more interesting and much richer and much more productive. And guess what? You're solving the problem for five countries simultaneously instead of just one. So this approach, which I call entrepreneurial multilateralism, is a really, really inherently valuable thing to try. It's really interesting. I wanted to think about a little bit the idea here in the United States, of course, there's a whole lot of politics going on around vaccines and the speed at which we can get vaccines out. I'm sure it's the same in UK and elsewhere around the, the, the world. And there is a, a bit of inherent tension, of course, in that you want to vaccinate your own people your own country as fast as you can. But we're never going to solve this whole pandemic until you get vaccines around the world so that people, you don't have hotspots popping up and closing down travel and, and all this sort of stuff. But if this, this does seem like something where there is an inherent tension there and politicians, leaders in countries are going to want to protect their own people first. Mm-hmm. And so how do you how do you deal with that and, and what sort of incentives are there towards that? It's always it's always a balance, isn't it? And, and when you say that governments are going to look after the interest of their own uh, people first, I add to that and rightly so. Mm-hmm. I never had any kind of problem with Donald Trump constantly repeating America first. That seemed to me to be a statement of the obvious. If you're elected to run a country, of course you put the interest of your own people first. Duh. What I found disappointing and old-fashioned about the way he appeared to interpret that was that everybody else needs to come last. And that's a tragedy because America right. of all countries has demonstrated over the years that it's rather good. It has been rather good. At least it's tried. which is more than you can say for most other countries over the centuries, to maintain a productive balance where you cooperate and you collaborate and you compete. It's what in industry they used to call co-opetition, and it works. I guess what I'm saying is not that we should all become totally selfless, because as I said before, a self-sacrificing nation makes no sense whatsoever. But if over time we can change the culture of governance from fundamentally competitive to fundamentally collaborative, where collaboration becomes the first instinct, And this is not just me saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if everything was wonderful? I think this is very clearly the imperative today, because the pandemic is just one of many possible quintessentially globalized challenges that we're facing today. We really don't have a choice. So if we can learn to to collaborate first and then compete on top of that, which works perfectly well, then I think over time we'll build up a level of trust within the international community where it's possible for all countries to when it's necessary, put their in, the interests of their own people and their own territory first, and others will not interpret that as aggression or hostility. They'll see that that's just necessary, and they'll wait patiently until it's their turn. And next time, maybe it'll be the other way around. The moment, because the culture of governance is fundamentally belligerent, fundamentally hostile, and has been since the Treaty of Westphalia, the interpretation is always a negative one. 
They're doing this because they want to damage us, because they don't care about us, because they don't hate us. So I think it, that all sounds very soft, but I think that that is actually the way that it works. There just isn't enough trust in the international system, and there's no reason why there should be. And that's the thing that probably needs to change. Talking about the United States, you know, of course, we are the, the American Security Project and based in D.C., and we advise the American government and think through, through it in that direction. The United States doesn't come as high as many European countries on, on this ranking. Is that purely because the United States is so large and that skews its numbers? Or is it, are there things that are lacking that the United States should do to become a good or gooder country in the respect of this ranking? And the U.S., you mentioned, we set mostly the global rules and the global international trading system and, and you know, set up the United Nations. Um, the, the, you know, global culture is, is dominated by Hollywood and American culture and, and that sort of stuff. Um, what should the United States be doing? And, and does the United States pay a, a, a price for not being perceived as a, as a good or good or goodest country uh, in the rankings? Uh, if, if it came to that over time, yes, it would pay a price. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I explain in my, in my book, The Good Country Equation, is that having measured um, the images of countries over many years, um, it's very, very clear that the primary driver of a good national image is not your success or your wealth or your power. Mm -hmm. it's, the, um, it's simply the question of whether people in other countries feel glad that you're there. Um, the perceived contribution you make to the collective good of humanity and the planet. That's the driver of a good image. You might well say, and America often does ask this question, who cares? What does it matter how people right. see us? And if you're as powerful as America, you're entitled to answer that, ask that question. The reality is that it's directly linked um, to trade and tourism and cultural and diplomatic relations and everything else. Right. And so if you're not admired as a country, it makes life very, very difficult for you, no matter how much hard power you may have. So it is decidedly in the interest of the United States to continue to be perceived, and you can only be perceived as something if you are that thing, yeah. um, to continue to be a net contributor to, to the well-being of humanity and the planet. Um, Another thing I would say about this is that um, uh, that sort of good uh, reputation is not something you own. It's something you rent and you need to continue to pay the rent on it. And uh, setting up the United Nations is definitely earning the esteem and gratitude of the world's population. Um, pumping out popular culture is a bit different. And depending on the tone uh, and the feeling around the planet at any given moment, it could equally well be interpreted as America invading right. uh, rather than America contributing. <laughs> so, so the way that you're regarded is actually as much the context in which your everyday actions are interpreted as it is the ultimate validity of those actions, which is a long way around of saying that even America should, and perhaps especially America should care about these things. Personally, I have little doubt that America's good name will recover fairly swiftly um, after, the, after the, the, the Trump episode for the simple reason that the world wants America back again. Right. Um, what really matters, I've discovered, looking at these kinds of issues is not whether people like you or don't like you, it's whether they want to like you or don't want to like you. Hmm. And if they don't want to like you, there's, there's almost nothing you can do to make them like you. Every good deed you do will be, it will be interpreted according to whatever malign motivation they can assign to you at that particular point. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a loser's game. You just cannot win if they don't want to like you. People do still want to like America. 
And so for that reason, I'm pretty convinced that America will come back. But don't forget that that rent still needs to continue to be paid and it can't be paid forever by MTV and Hollywood and, and, uh, and Nike. Um, that's, it also has to be paid through policy. So what, to get specific, uh, what recommendations would you give? Say you were invited to give a lecture uh, at the State Department. Uh, well, what recommendations I, 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 would you give? I would, I would applaud a lot of the things that are already happening, um, not just to make sure that I got invited back again, but because that's, uh, because that, that, that's what's, that's what's, I mean, for example, um, going straight back and ratifying the Paris Accord was yeah. probably the simplest, cheapest, most immediate and most useful thing that America could do. Yeah. Because perceptions of climate change and the importance of climate change are very different from country to country. And if you take a purely American perspective on that, it, you might end up feeling that that's, you know, uh, um, it's not mandatory. Yeah. But from the point of view of the average European, to a great extent, the average African, and to some extent, the average Asian, Asian that's almost the most important thing of all. Because yeah. even if people aren't obsessed with climate change, climate change is just a, such a good model of yeah. international collaboration. If you're doing something about climate change, whether or not you understand that as being a serious threat to humanity, you will always understand it as being a country that wants to work with other countries, that wishes us well, that doesn't hate us, that doesn't see us as a, as a burden on the planet or a nuisance, or maybe just customers to be marketed to. Um, so things of that sort are absolutely essential first moves. And, you know, congratulations to the, to the, to the, the, the Biden administration. They've seen that. It, it, yeah. it's, not, it's not genius, but they did right. it and they could right, easily right. have not done it. Um, beyond that, of course, I think it's very much about um, having a very clear strategy for what it is America is for. Um, you know, why, why America? How, uh, how do you justify your place on the planet? Even America has to answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what is the strategy? Is it to restore and retrieve and uh, create a renaissance of multilateralism? Because for sure we need multilateralism, but right. for sure a lot of people have lost faith in it, often for very good reasons, often reasons that are closely connected with things that America has done. So is that, is that it? Is that the strategy? Whatever it is, America needs to start doing things that are not just no-brainers, like reversing the Trump decision on the Paris Accord, but powerful, provocative, imaginative, courageous policies that really, really demonstrate that you've got skin in the game and you're still committed to making life on earth better and longer and happier for everybody, not just for yourselves. And that you're interested in helping others to rise because they in turn will help you to rise. As I said before, it is all ultimately self-interest, but people pick up a narrative about where a country is going from its policies and from its actions much more than from what its messages uh, may or may not be at any given moment. I think it was Condoleezza Rice who spoke of the diplomacy of deeds a very elegant phrase, uh, which I think the current administration will do well to remember. And wasn't it Admiral Mullen who said, yeah. we should think less about how to communicate our actions and more about what our actions communicate. Right. And I think that should probably be tattooed on the inner thigh of everybody in the State Department. <laughs> we talk about it some, the, the say do gap, right? You know, sometimes right. you have to talk about what you want to do, but in the end, you have to actually do the things. Mm. And people get that feeling of American influence based on what America does, not just on what America talks about doing. Yeah. I mean, it's worth, it's worth adding at this point that, that America's role in the world has changed as a result of the, the Trump um, mm -hmm. period. What it's done, I think, generally speaking, from my European point of view, is actually quite good. It has cured an awful lot of complacency about the dependability of the United States. 
and this notion that the international system is underwritten forever and permanently and irrevocably by the force of America. I think once that certainty has been taken away from you, it's never really going to come back. And that's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing for the rest of the world because they're less complacent, less dependent. And it's also good for America because in the same way, it means that America can no longer depend on people just assuming that they're there for a good reason. It's America is going to have to fight, you know, just like any other country now for yeah. the respect and the attention that uh, it requires in order compete to compete for relations. Yeah, compete for it. But but I like our chances, honestly, if, if it's a global competition for influence between, you know, the American model versus the Chinese model versus yeah. some other. But it was never going to be that simple, alas. And anyway, <laughs> and, and anyway, you may say that, but not everybody does. And not every, uh, yeah. there, there are plenty of people out there in the world who are younger people, particularly growing up in a world where the obvious advantages of Western style democracy are not so engraved in stone yeah um who are perfectly prepared to and who have never personally witnessed the second world war or the cold war who are perfectly prepared to believe that another system might be better than the um than the the western democratic model so that there is competition there undoubtedly and america has to fight for its uh, for its right to be respected and i just think that's really that's really good for everybody yeah it, but, but this is this is also and it, I feel as if I'm lecturing um, somebody who knows far more about this than I do, but it is also a security issue. Less so for America, of course, because of its ample supply of hard power, but nonetheless still a security issue. If a country does good around the world and is therefore admired and liked, it is much more secure than a country that couldn't be, people couldn't care less about. Now, this is much more noticeable with weak countries. You take the example of Ukraine. Why was it that when uh, Vladimir Putin annexed the Crimea, not very many Western governments stood up and condemned him really as heartily as they ought to have done? Right. Part of the reason is because the politicians who should have condemned him more heartily knew they could get away with not doing so. And they knew they could get away with not doing so because they knew that their own citizens wouldn't care because they'd never heard of Ukraine or they didn't know what it was. Right. Or maybe they thought it was part of Russia anyway. Right. Um, literally, though, that level of weak branding, if you like, that Ukraine has. If, on the other hand, you're a country that everybody likes and knows and trusts, like Hong Kong, not right. a country, but a territory, right. then it's much harder. And you get people like Boris Johnson, a noted populist, rushing to the defense of Hong Kong, offering pre free citizenship, forsooth, to Hong Kong uh, residents, even though that will cost him dearly in the UK. Why? Because he knows his own people won't forgive him for not coming to the aid of a dearly loved territory like Hong Kong. So in the end, being liked by the international community is a suit of armor, which will protect you in times of threat. And if you're not liked or you're not trusted or you're not known, then you are super vulnerable in times of conflict. Really interesting. As we, we close up, we always like to ask, you know, what the headlines of tomorrow are, are going to be? What should we be working for if, for a headline of five to 10 years from now? How do you anticipate your index changing in the next mm -hmm. decade? And then also, what are, what's a goal for how a country over the next decade can increase its, its global perception. What should a country be, do, be doing to get to that, that headline? 
to tell you the honest truth, it's relatively easy to improve your ranking on the Good Country Index because of there being 35 equally weighted data sets. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is to pick the one that's easiest for you to reform on, and immediately one thirty-fifth of your score is going to go way up. Okay. So uh, you know, stop uh, stop uh, exporting poisonous pesticides, hazardous pesticides, and your score will immediately rise. Where a country ranks, as I'm constantly telling governments, in mine or in any other index is not an end in itself. But what it represents uh, is important. I think what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is a much more complex and much more vibrant form of multilateralism. I used this awful term earlier, the entrepreneurial multilateralism, mm. which means that countries are forming and disbanding almost continuously in an entrepreneurial spirit, liaisons with other countries, other cities, individuals, rock bands, corporations, I don't know what, in order to take ownership of international challenges and solve them in their own terms and their own timescale. This doesn't threaten the United Nations or the international system. In fact, the UN would love it if countries did this more often. What I'm expecting and what I'm hoping for is a much more vibrant, much more volatile, much more busy neighborhood of multilateral experiments in collaboration, competition, and cooperation all working together for yeah. individual and collective good. So that we're no longer looking at blocks. This is the European Union looking after its own interests and excluding everybody else. This is Mercosur doing the same thing in Latin America. No, much more a constantly shifting dance of power holders, not just nation states, working together when it works, for as long as it works, and then moving on to something else. So not these vast structures which we're stuck with for decades and which we can't change and we can't update. Yeah. Well, Simon, where, where can uh, listeners find out more about you and, and find your, uh, your work? Well, the website, which has got all of my projects and the Good Country Index on it, is just www.good.country. And that really is a domain, good.country. It I like doesn't it. have a .com or anything at the end of it. <laughs> Great. Well, well, we'll put that on the, the show links. And uh, thanks for being with us. Really interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Andrew.